Difference Maker is a leader whose life is all about learning. Hi, I'm Adam Van Bremer, the editorial page editor of Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Welcome to Difference Makers, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories and insights from Savannah's key players, the men and women who lead our city in commerce, in arts and culture, in philanthropy, and in government. Difference Makers explores the methods behind success and gives you a whole new perspective in business, leadership, and this community. Dr. Anne Levesque grew up in Savannah's Frogtown neighborhood and reached the pinnacle of her profession, leading a program focused on primary school education at Yale. Yes, that Yale, the Ivy League school. Circumstances led her back home, and she's now in her second year as the superintendent of Savannah's public schools, which continue to see graduation rates climb. Joined today on the Difference Makers podcast by Dr. Ann Levette, Superintendent of Schools, Savannah Chatham County Public School System. Welcome in, Dr. Levette. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you are a, let's start with the bio. You're a Savannah native. You grew up here. Can you kind of share a little bit about uh, your family background and, and growing up in a town and in a time that was pretty interesting in these parts? I would say very interesting. I grew up right here in Savannah. Um, I grew up on on the west side of town, so um, grew up. I was born in the Frogtown area, which is now the Scad area, mm-hmm. right <laughs> off of West Boundary Street, yeah. and then moved from there to Hitch Village, from Hitch Village to Tatumville, from Tatumville to Cloverdale, mm-hmm. and so all on the west side of town. However, relatives on various other parts of the city, so. Had a pretty, um, I think, good and diverse um, experience growing up. I'm, of course, a product of the public schools, very proud product of the public schools, graduating from Beach High School, and um, then going from there to Armstrong mm-hmm. and Savannah State, and then Armstrong, Georgia Southern, and then getting my uh, terminal degree from the University of Georgia. No Georgia Tech in there anymore? Not Georgia Tech, University of Georgia. <laughs> Red and black. <laughs> Um, I, I assume blue collar background you're, with, with your oh, family. Oh, sure. My uh, my parents, of course, are working parents, and I am the oldest of five um, living children. Mm-hmm. That means, you know, for a lot of days, my parents were working, and of course, people now call it latchkey. We just mm-hmm. call it being um, obedient and understanding what our responsibilities were. So. I was a nerd for sure. I mean, read a lot and also was very directive with my younger brother and sisters. So just had a a good experience, I think a very rich experience growing up. The schools were segregated at the time. I do not find that to be a negative. I found it to be very positive. Mm -hmm. Our teachers loved us, encouraged us understood what was happening in the country in terms of social justice so they encouraged us as did my parents to remain vigilant to learn what we needed to do and to map out our own future not be limited by um, rules or other policies that governed um, the country but to speak up for ourselves and to be very active in our community was that confusing being an african-american teenager in the late 60s and early 70s, was it 
confusing what was going on around you or, or pretty well aware and everybody kind of knew where their role was? Very well aware. My parents, of course, working, recognized and came home and talked to us about the various things happening in the community. Mm-hmm. Lots of protests, boycotts. And sometimes when you're young and experiencing it, if you're experiencing it without some narrative being provided to you by caring adults, then you may be confused about it. Didn't understand a lot of it, didn't appreciate a lot of it until I, of course, grew older. But all the while, I do remember some of those images, some of those things happening in my parents and my teachers um, tried to explain to us what was happening and then talk to us about how we should respond if those conditions continued. Interesting. You spent your early professional years here and and then you went and kind of broadened your horizons a little bit. Can you talk right. about what kind of influences that you were in, in Dayton, Ohio? I'm a Midwesterner as well. I know that it's different there and then Northeast is is, is Yale, it's New Haven. Different. It's even more different. Can you kind of talk about the influences yeah. you got in those places? Well, one of the things that I think was really helpful for me, I started out as a, a speech and language pathologist here in Chatham. But before I joined the school district, I had a number of other experiences um, with the speech path. path and that was really helpful. Um, I became a teacher in the system, of course, starting out as a speech path. And then, of course, from teaching to assistant principal and then kind of up up the ladder from there. Decided for both personal and professional reasons that I should leave the area, and I did. Um, went Going first to D.C. the year the government shut down. So I go for a job and it doesn't actually materialize and then was recruited to Ohio and enjoy that experience with the public school system there different community um, what I've learned over all of my experiences people are the same really at the bottom of it all it doesn't really matter where they are they want to be loved cared about respected and we should take the time to know each other as humans mm-hmm. um, the Midwest was different because the weather pattern was different we lived by the weather pattern mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily care for the winters mm-hmm. but you know adjusted and that's what I learned too we're very adaptable people from there, I had an opportunity to, I was recruited to Yale University School of Medicine, which is like a whole different kind of world. Mm-hmm. People still want to be loved, cared about, respected, just need to spend time getting to know them. What I did there was I was exposed to economic differences, mm-hmm. probably more than anything else, right. and recognizing that Yale was New Haven, mm-hmm. but there are lots of people living in that community who care deeply about um, everything that's there, and there are lots of collaborative efforts to ensure that town and gown mm-hmm. um, do not serve as a divider for the community. Um, in that job, I traveled the world, um, learned more about people in other places, and enjoyed that experience. It just it was amazing to me that a a girl who grew up in Savannah, who was a public school graduate, public university graduate, could, based on my experience, be able to go in and work with any community and sit with a person who had millions at their disposal mm-hmm. and enjoy a conversation and be able to engage fully and also be able to engage fully with people who did not have that kind of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is one of the gifts that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that was given to me was to be able to understand who people are. Um, enjoyed my time tremendously at Yale just based on the experiences I had, but also knew that my family needs were um, indicating I needed to return to Savannah. Yeah. While you were in New Haven, you worked for Yale, but you also served on the public school board. Can you talk about yes. that experience and what? It, how does that? How does that change your perspective now being, I don't want to say the other side, but but really being uh, more on the administrative side? Well, I think the um, interesting thing is being a public school board member in New Haven. One, I served district-wide, so I didn't serve a particular ward or district. Mm-hmm. I served district-wide. The other thing was it was an, uh, an appointed board, so the mayor um, appointed me based on my my experience in education. Mm-hmm. Um, that was interesting as well, the difference between elected and appointed boards. Sure. But I took that invitation um, well. I mean, he certainly talked to me like several times before I agreed right. to do it. <laughs> but then it, it also helped me further understand the difference between policy making and administration. Mm-hmm. So I bring a lot of that to my current position. It's like, no, the board is responsible for the what, yes. and we administration is responsible for the how. Right. So you hear me talk about that because I lived, lived, lived that. Yeah. Yes, and I. It also gives me a great appreciation for the public's perception of what the board should be doing versus what the board actually should be doing. Yeah. So I understand that confusion, and I understand the need, especially with an elected board, for people to demand certain things of the board member mm-hmm. ought to do this and, mm-hmm. and I understand that confusion but I also understand that underneath it all people really care about kids and want kids to, to have a good experience and be prepared for life yeah is it easier to be overseen or to oversee, I guess, is the bottom Well, I tell you, that's, that's correct. And what I'd like <laughs> is an opportunity to just work with um, people who share that same value yeah. and understand that it really does require a partnership and a clear understanding of who plays what role mm-hmm. so that we can avoid conflicts mm-hmm. based on knowledge. Mm-hmm. You mentioned everybody at the end of the day has their focus on kids and uh, I know one thing that that you really have been focused on is the struggling schools and what we can do at beyond just throwing money at the problem or throwing you know stomping our foot and and carrying on what are some of the things that that we are doing or that you want to do or maybe even that we're not doing that we can put toward helping these struggling schools well, I, I always appreciate an opportunity to talk about that because I think we have to look at where the schools are that have, have struggled tremendously. What is it that makes them continue to struggle? And I think it should be clear to everyone that you cannot fix the schools until you fix those communities from which the children come. By that I mean that children are very resilient, but they they're not operating in a vacuum. And if, as one second grader said to me not long after arriving, I can't sleep at night because someone may, be, someone may shoot my grandma. 
I can't expect that that kid's going to come to school the next day being well-rested and being able to focus. They're not able to compartmentalize. Some of us can't compartmentalize. So recognizing that the communities need work. But here's what I can say to you, that if we are fortunate, we have kids six hours a day from, from all the communities, at least six hours a day if we're fortunate, if they come. Mm -hmm. So our job is to give them a reason to come and give them opportunities to come and and resources to get there first. The other thing is that six hours a day is only 25% of their day. So for the other 18 hours, they are under conditions that we have no control or influence over. They also, if we're very fortunate, come to school for 180 days a year which is less than half of the full year. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important for people to recognize that schools have a small window of opportunity to make a difference. So it's really important that we have teachers who understand the conditions under which they labor. They also, many of the children, move a lot mm-hmm. uh, based on a number of conditions not of their own making. So our, you know, our responsibility is to identify and study very carefully what the data says about those young people, what resources that they need, make sure we connect with others in the community who can help the families themselves, and then more importantly, connect with the other agencies that can help um, lift those families. Other than that, we're going to continue to see um, high movement um, and some other factors over which we have no control. Now, one of the things I'm really proud of is with 55 schools, sometimes kids are exposed to 55 different ways of doing things and 55 different curricula packages. Um, One thing we did last year after a few years of study is adopted one approach for English language arts and one approach for math across the district. So it didn't matter what school you went to, mm-hmm. you, were still have a, you still had that same um, curriculum experience in those two very critical areas. Mm-hmm. And then looking at some other ways to, across the board, support positive behaviors, offer assistance, providing certain resources in places where the n- needs were more acute than others. And I think those are some of the things that we've seen work really well. And then testing some of the ideas and hypotheses we have by looking at the data and then looking at communities that are very much like our own and adopting those things and sometimes adapting those things that have worked in other places Mm -hmm. so that we can create some better futures for our students. One of the misnomers, at least I believe one of the misnomers, is that this is that struggling schools are an inner city problem. This is more countywide. Is that correct? I think we have identified, not think, but I'm clear that we've identified several pockets across the county where students are struggling. And struggling itself can be defined in different ways. I may struggle because I'm home insecure, food insecure lots of challenges in my community in terms of safety. But we also have some communities where there are all the material needs, Mm -hmm. but lack of parent oversight and supervision Mm -hmm. where risky behaviors are allowed to flourish. So those are schools too that have 
um, children engaging behaviors simply because no one's watching. Right. Um, so they may not be struggling in terms of academic performance, but they're struggling in terms of student well-being, and it may not appear to be that way. We also have a pretty diverse community. Not all of the young people who are under um, resourced are living in the city. Mm-hmm. Some live in other parts of the city. Um, so we have made sure that we've looked at that data, looked at income needs, and then tried to put our resources where the needs are. But every place that serves children, you'll find a variety of needs. What happens is there's a lot of focus on the inner city. Mm-hmm. And people even say the inner city implying that all of these things are wrong with the inner city. Mm -hmm. But there's also a great level of resilience Mm -hmm. in those children that may be necessary in other parts of our city. But one of the things that I think makes for a strong young person is understanding how to survive, how to make good decisions, and how to be resilient. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sometimes we don't see that in places where young people have what we consider to be a very good life. Mm-hmm. When we talk about schools, we a lot of times are focusing on those 55 campuses between 8 and 3 from early August till the middle of May. But uh, another big part of that right now, of course, is partnerships within the community. And I know that's something that's very important for you. I think very important for this community, especially when it comes to the uh, the high school students, the teenagers. Can you talk a little bit about the partnerships that you've got going or that you want to see get going? Oh my gosh, well, we, um, we are very fortunate, and uh, I say that to everyone that I meet about the community cares about children, and when, you, when I look at some communities, I don't see that, but of course I'm looking from afar. One of the things that I've taken great pride in is, is sharing with the larger community the support that we get from a lot of our partners. Gulfstream's been in here with us for 10 solid years, and they have provided not only the student leadership program, but they've also provided apprenticeships and internships for our kids. So we've used that model to also approach others in our community who could provide the same kind of life readiness um, opportunities for students. Um, I don't see a way that we can manage the needs of children, staff, and families in our community without partnering with other folks. It just makes good sense to me. Um, You know, we've partnered, um, of course, with um, Gulfstream. We've partnered with New York Life Foundation most recently. We've partnered with St. Joseph's Candler. Lots of other, um, even smaller organizations organizations, but they are willing to give an opportunity to our young people that they see have promise, and they want to give them a chance to grow and experience life after high school. Um, While many of our young people go directly to work, many of them go directly to college, Mm -hmm. but after it's all over, they still need a job to sustain their family. So I just say every scholar needs a job. You could be like me and have a lot of degrees, but I still need a job. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to um, sustain myself and my family. We also want to make sure that young people also know that you can work for someone, but you can also work for yourself. Mm-hmm. So promoting entrepreneurship is really important to me for young people to know what's it like to run a business. America's built on small business. 
no matter how many big box stores we have, it's the mom and the pops or the smaller businesses that have started that allow people to make a decent living in America. So I want our students who are working with um, the Junior Achievement and working on our Junior Achievement Academy to understand that. Our young people who are out studying um, engineering, I want them to know that all of those firms that work with us ensure that we have good opportunities available for them. Our partnership with the Savannah Film Office allows our young people to learn how to operate behind the camera. You may not get to be the person in front of the camera, but you provide a very valuable service working behind the camera. A lot more jobs, too, behind the camera. A lot more jobs behind the camera. (laughs) The young people who can write, the young people who can code, um, those are the young people that we're focusing on, giving them some real experiences out in the field with caring adults, with our supervision, so that they understand the world of work. Mm -hmm. And that's really important for me. Another aspect of the community partnerships is the partnerships we have with higher education institutions and some of the dual enrollment programs. Can you talk a little bit about those? Oh my gosh, yes. I I love talking about dual enrollment just because it makes such a difference. Um, we started, when I arrived in the city, we had small numbers of kids across all the schools who are involved in the dual enrollment program. And what dual enrollment provides is an opportunity for a high school student to earn college credits and high school credits while they're in high school. A lot of it's free too. Right? It's free, and the and the tra- uh, the credits are transferable. So what's really exciting is that at when I first came back here in October of thirteen, we had kids in specific schools who participated in large numbers in dual enrollment, three to be exact three high schools it was like savannah early college kids were 11th and 12th grades more on college campuses than they were savannah state than they were in their own school um lots of kids from savannah arts and lots of kids from woodville tompkins challenge for me is this is a kind of routine in those buildings we need to make it routine for other students as well so we methodically and deliberately started to work to ensure that all kids had the opportunity for dual enrollment. That meant we needed to bring more professors into our classrooms and then encourage students also who had the means to travel to a college campus to do so. And we were able to do that. That worked. And increasingly, we have young people who are engaged in dual enrollment. I think the other thing that was really exciting is we reached down to our middle schools and said on every middle school campus, we want high school courses taught for those kids who are excelling. And every year we've seen more and more of that. So now we have every middle school that offers high school courses. So when they get to high school, they have space open for the college courses. And that's very exciting. That's a great program. Let's take a, a quick break here, catch our breaths, and then we'll come back and we'll nerd out and talk a little bit in depth about some education issues. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com website. Want 24-7 access to the best in local news, commentary, sports, and arts and culture? Sign up now for a digital subscription to SavannahNow.com 
and take advantage of a special offer. Get full access to the website's content for $8.30 a month when you sign up for a full year. That's more than $3 off the regular month-to-month rate. Stay informed. Subscribe to savannahnow.com. Call Rodney Phillips at 912-652-0404. That's 912-652-0404 to take advantage of this introductory offer. Welcome back to the Difference Makers podcast, joined by Dr. Ann Levette, Superintendent of Schools, Savannah, Chatham County Public School System. Let's nerd out right now and get in depth on a couple of uh, issues and topics involved in education. And I know here in Savannah, uh, a big topic, and it's a topic everywhere, but I know it's something that that parents in this in this county certainly really care about, and that's teacher retention. And we've got some good ones, and I know that we're currently engaged in a plan that is gradually increasing pay, but I take it that compensation isn't the only important aspect of, of teacher retention? Um, we are very proud of those teachers who've been with us for a long time, some far beyond the required years for retirement. Uh, I think in the last group from the spring, we had a teacher retired with 42 years of service. And that is a lot of dedication, especially when you can you can retire you know, prior to that. Um, we are very proud of them. They hang in there. They give us really good feedback. And some love the area and they love the children. And they still, even some who retire, still come back and volunteer with us. And we're excited about that and always appreciative of them. One of the things that we've been very focused on however is making sure that we are keeping pace or trying to catch up really with compensation Um, it's really important to us that those very lean years you know our teachers hung in there with us and it's important for us now to try to become more competitive and stay competitive they work really hard all the staff work hard the teachers really deserve to get back some of those steps or some of those um, incentives that we were able to offer years ago. We're working daily to try to get some of those things back. Just even looking at our basic uh, benefits, making sure that we're trying to move those forward as we can. It's important that teachers stay with the kids. It's also important that we recognize the current market we're in, where People may not be as committed to it as a career. They may see it as a job, and so they cycle in and cycle out. Nonetheless, we need to also ensure as a district that we are providing support for teachers. I think the biggest challenge we have right now is time for professional development. I am not an advocate of conducting all professional development at the end of the day. It just... Is, I mean, you can do it every now and then, but to expect teachers to teach a full day and then engage in professional development at the end of the day every time, I don't think it's fair to them. I think we need to move to the kind of schedules and calendars which allow teachers to engage in professional development, sometimes at their leisure, but sometimes in an environment that may be outside the typical environment for them. So we're looking at how we can do that, how we can adjust our calendar to give them time together so they can can collaborate, relax, and think about how to meet students' needs better and how to meet their own needs. So we're working diligently on teacher retention and also addressing some of the great needs that teachers have around classroom management, organization, um, behavior is 
and continues to be a challenge. So how do I provide more support to teachers? Having conversations with university uh, preparation programs about need more work with classroom management. And if they come and they're not quite prepared for working in some of the more challenging classrooms, how do we provide that kind of high-quality, on-the-spot support for them so they don't get frustrated and leave? Teachers can be so influential, and I know that as a superintendent, you're not necessarily down in the weeds dealing with teachers every day, but you were a principal, you were a chief academic officer. When you went to recruit or, or hire or evaluate teachers, what were some of the things that that maybe we don't think about in the general public that you really kind of honed in on and we're looking for and what makes a, a, a great teacher. I look for a teacher who understands who her students are and made it a, a point to have a relationship with each of them, to know what their needs are and to know them as individuals. I think that's the key. It's like having your own kids. Like you, you can have two kids and they can be like so different. Like did you all grow up in the same house. So each of the kids is different and also each teacher is different each teacher brings his or her own gifts to the situation so us knowing how to support the teacher but also helping the teacher to get to know the students and giving him or her the kind of flexibility to be creative and to meet the needs of those individual students of course I believe that if teachers have good support and good guidance they're able to manage some of the challenges that they have um, with individual students. We need to build that support system for them, but also while recognizing students have rights too, but to engage people that may help both the student and the teacher find success. Um, Sometimes that is outside of what we recommend. Sometimes we just need to hear them, to hear what teachers are saying about what they're struggling with, and then giving them the kind of support they need with um, an under-resourced, I mean, we have 3,500 teachers. Mm-hmm. I really need 3,500 people to work with, uh, with, with them because right. even the strongest teacher will find some challenging situation. But I think we continue to struggle with how do we provide high-quality support and professional development for them? How do we find the time to do it? Mm-hmm. That's our biggest piece. Speaking of challenges, and, and forgive the segue, but another big topic in education and schools now is security. Obviously, we've seen some, some incidents around the country this year that have certainly been very uh, sobering for all of us. And I know that uh, in, the current, in the current budget, there, there was some extra money put in for school security. Uh, from your perspective, it's not just a matter of, of door locks and metal detectors and, and extra uh, school resource officers. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the, a more comprehensive view on how to make our schools safer? Well, I think one of the things that sh- we should all be aware of is it is very unfortunate that we our, our system is built on trust. I mean, we're in here, we're having a good conversation. Someone who has a different view of the world or some axe to grind or just is not sound can come in and disturb the peace in ways that we'll never forget. We're seeing it in restaurants, malls, churches, uh, concerts. We're seeing it everywhere. What what really makes it startling is that it's happening at a greater rate. And when schools are involved, it's just unforgivable and, and shattering. We have continued to make improvements in our 
um, security processes, but we are now faced with making drastic changes in school security. I don't apologize for that at all. I think it's our responsibility, both professionally and ethically, to do everything we can. In this budget that's proposed, you know, we are proposing just a probably a small percentage of what we see as being necessary, both hardware and hardware. When I say hardware, I mean locks, cameras, all of those kinds of things that are helpful. But we also have included in this budget a hardware piece, which means how do we prevent uh, some of the things that we're seeing? How do we help children and families know where to go for help? Um, How do we help children um, by having more counselors, social workers, and uh, mental health specialists available to kids and others? What we've seen in these latest school shootings are people who come from the outside. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to ensure that everyone is vigilant, everyone's watchful. And so you are in the building, you may have been in here five times before, but you didn't check in. That's something we can't tolerate. We have to have people follow processes that we've set up to help us feel secure, help us know who's in the building. We've had a lot of conversation this year about volunteers. I think it's important for us to be very, very mindful of whomever is in the building because what we want to do is to feel confident that we've done everything humanly possible to ensure the safety of our children and our staff. So there's a lot of hardware being uh, put into place, and there's a lot of hardware and changes and processes that people will find inconvenient. But I'd rather apologize for the inconvenience of you having to check in, not being able to run down the hall, not be able to do the things we've done before. I'd rather apologize for that than to apologize for not having taken all the steps that I could to ensure safety. Yeah, and I think it's important that we need to remind each other of that because the other reminder is when something happens. I, it, it drove me crazy for years that that 9-11 faded from memory so fast, and you know, not long after that, people were complaining about the security procedures at the airport. You know what? You strip search me if you need to, but we want to be safe when we get onto these airplanes, and it's different situation but at the same time it's a similar situation that when i drop my children off at school i want there to be some kind of assurance that that others that are entering into that school are are vetted and and you know people people say oh i don't want to go through a security check because i'm coming here to see about my child fine but when you go to the courthouse city hall any federal building you have to be screened and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'd much rather screen someone that's coming in and feeling fairly secure Mm -hmm. than to say, oh, well, I know him. Yeah. Because in each of these cases we've seen recently, they know the person who's coming to the building. So it's a little uncomfortable for us. Mm -hmm. I still don't like it that I have to go through the screening thing at the airport, especially when I'm running late. (laughs) But guess what? What I know is everyone else has had that experience as well. Yeah. So I'm irritated because I'm late yeah. or because I just think it's a nuisance, but I still do it. Right. Well, we have to leave it there, go out on a, a somber note, I guess. But the conversation, thank you very much. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for coming in. 
Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. And I'd love to come again. You can count on it. (laughs) 